Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. The Quraysh, after many, many years of persecuting the Prophet and the Muslims and trying every way possible to stop this religion, realize that all their efforts have failed. Once they lose patience and they realize there's nothing else they can do to stop this Prophet, they call for an urgent meeting in Dar al-Nadwa. Dar al-Nadwa, it was a house founded in the year 475 AD. So that's exactly about a century, almost a century before the birth of the Holy Prophet because the Prophet was born in which year? 570 AD, this is 475, so we're talking about 95 years before the birth of the Holy Prophet. This house was founded, basically the elders of Mecca would gather in this house, they would meet, discuss important matters and they would make important decisions. So they call for an urgent meeting, the leaders of Quraysh in this house, Dar al-Nadwa, to discuss what their next step would be. For a long time, Quraysh had contemplated the idea of assassinating the Prophet. That did cross their minds many, many times before. But they realized that doing so would come with a big responsibility. Who's going to kill the Prophet? Any person would kill the Prophet would drag his entire tribe into a drawn out war with Bani Hashim and, and you know, the, the family of Bani Hashim. Remember, the Prophet came from the family of Bani Hashim. They were a strong, well-respected family. So if you assassinate the Prophet, that means Bani Hashim are going to attack your tribe. They would seek retribution. So no one really dared to do that. And this is a main reason why they had not seriously considered killing the Prophet. Who's going to take that responsibility? No one wants to go to war with Bani Hashim. They also had some alliances with other tribes. So no one had, had the audacity to do something like that. Now, some books of history like Al-Bidayah wa Nahaya, which is a Sunni book of history, it claims, it makes the claim, and this is very possible, we do have such references in history, such similar incidents. It says that Iblis, the big Satan, came in the form of a Najdi looking man, an Arabian looking man from the area of Najd. He joined this urgent meeting that they called for and he also gave his opinion. Numerous tribal leaders gathered and they just said, you know, enough is enough, let's finish this. Some suggested to arrest the prophet and imprison him. But they realized, you know, until when can we imprison him? Eventually the Bani Hashim will pressure us so much such that we have to leave him. Some said, let's banish him, let's exile him from Arabia. They figured that's not a great idea because he'll just get stronger out there and then he'll come back after us. So they were stuck not knowing what to do. Yes, did you have a question? So Iblis gives them the idea and Abu Jahl, is the one who supports this idea. They're like, look, if any 
single person kills the Prophet, that tribe to whom this person belongs to will be in trouble. So let's select 15 well-respected men ages 40 and older from each tribe, each powerful tribe and have these 15 together kill the Prophet. Now what is Bani Hashim going to do? Go to war with 15 tribes? That's not possible. You can't go to war with 15 tribes, it's just not possible. One tribe, two tribes, you can. Not 15, not everybody in Mecca. So they'll settle for the diya, for the blood money. We'll sit with Bani Hashim, we'll apologize to them, okay here, we'll give you the blood money, the diya, and it's over. They loved the idea. They realized this is fantastic. Not a single tribe or person will be responsible for the death of the Prophet. So they decided, let's execute this plan. Let's execute this wonderful plan, they thought. Let's have 15 people take each one a sword in their hands. At once they strike the Prophet with one blow, such that they all participate in the killing of the Prophet. So once they decided to go with this plan, something very important happens. This is now the night of the Hijrah, the very last night of the Prophet staying in Mecca. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse in the Holy Quran and God informs the Prophet of this evil plot. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals the following verse, Surah Al-Anfal, verse 30, وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيُثْبِتُوكَ أَوْ يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ And the disbelievers, they developed a scheme, an evil plan against you to either take you as a captive or kill you or drive you away because these were the three options that they discussed. Then Allah says they scheme and Allah schemes and Allah is the best of planners. So Allah informs the Prophet through Jibra'il. After being informed of this assassination plot, what is the first thing the Prophet does? The first move that he takes. It's a very important move that really tells us who the leader after the Prophet was. When you're told such an important news that you're being, you're about to be assassinated tonight, you share this news with the closest person to you, with a person whom you fully, fully trust and you find trustworthy. Now if you look at the Muslim Ummah and how they glorify certain personalities in history, you would assume he probably told who? He probably told Abu Bakr, right? The first Khalifa, obviously. La la, he told Umar. No, he told Uthman. Who did the Prophet tell? The Prophet goes immediately to Ali ibn Abi Talib And he informs him. Why does the Prophet go to Imam Ali? Because the Prophet knew there was one companion whose only concern in life is to protect the Prophet. And he'll do anything to protect the Prophet. That's his priority. So he goes to Amir al-Mu'mineen Ali ibn Abi Talib salam, and he tells him, Allah has informed me that the pagans have decided to kill me in this way. Allah has commanded me to leave Mecca. 
However, for their plot to fail and for me to leave, I need you to sleep in my bed. To act as if I am in my bed. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help me leave the city of Mecca and they'll think I'm still in my bed. Are you willing? What is the first question Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib asked the Prophet? The first question. What's going to happen? Will they kill me? Will they not kill me? No. He says, Ya Rasulullah, if I do that, will you be okay? The Prophet says, yes. If you do that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will save me, I'll be okay. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib smiles. He falls into sujood, prostration, thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for giving him this honor. He says, Ya Rasulullah, if you're safe, I accept. Notice he does not ask about his own faith. Not a single question from Imam Ali. What will happen to me? Will I be wounded? Will they attack me? Nothing, nothing. His only, only concern was the safety of the Holy Prophet Once the Prophet sees Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib is willing to sacrifice himself, the Prophet had a Yemeni Hadrami cloak, came from Yemen. It was a cloak that the Prophet would normally wear. So if anyone was wearing that cloak, you know, you would think it was the Prophet wearing it. He gives it to Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib and he tells him wear this and be dressed in this cloak when they attack. So they would think that it's the Prophet sleeping there. So he agreed and Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib went to the Prophet's bed that night. The 15 men come, they surround the house of the Holy Prophet Initially, their plan was to attack at night. Abu Lahab, the uncle of the Prophet, he was evil but he's the uncle of the Prophet, he has relatives in the house. He told them, look, there are women and children in the house. Let's not attack at night. Wait till dawn, at Fajr, then attack. You know, because at Fajr people wake up and you don't want to just scare these women and the children in the middle of the night. They agreed, they said fine, we'll go to the house at night and we'll surround the house, make sure that the Prophet doesn't leave. Then in the morning we'll strike. So this was now their scheme and their plan. That night after the, after the after sunset, when the sky darkened, the Prophet set out from his house to leave. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib was now in the room. The Prophet now wants to leave. Now when the Prophet wanted to leave, they were now outside. The 15 men were now surrounding the house of the Prophet to make sure that he doesn't leave. So as he was leaving the house, the Prophet does two things. The first one, he recites this, su- this verse from Surah Yasin. وَجَعَلْنَا مِنْ بَيْنِ أَيْدِيهِمْ سَدًّا وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ سَدًّا فَأَغْشَيْنَاهُمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُبْصُرُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says re- regarding the uh, unbelievers and we have placed a barrier before them and a barrier behind them and have covered them up so they're unable to see. Allah, uh, the Prophet reads this verse. By the way, we call this the verse of protection, right? Whenever, this is Surah Yasin. Ayat is said, yes, ayat is said, the ayah of barrier or protection. Yes, we call this ayat is said and you know a lot of people recite it if they don't want to get caught doing something. 
I even find a lot of friends, if uh, they're concerned about the cops, seeing them, they would recite this uh, verse. Yes, one friend from California once told me, I was driving, uh, I don't know, he was speeding or he passed the red light, he did something. He's like, I saw a cop with, with his, I mean, he was actively seeing, whether the radar gun in his hand or just monitoring the intersection. He's like, I knew I was speeding and the minute I realized there's a car, I read the verse. He told me, say it, the minute I read the verse, he lowered his head and he just didn't see me. <laughs> so the Prophet he actually did recite this verse for protection and this is also for protection. Now, you know, be safe on the road. Don't say, okay, now I have a verse, let me break any law. No, that's not acceptable. Be safe. But yes, for protection, if there are enemies who want to hurt you, this is good for protection. So the Prophet he recites this verse. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does, he takes a handful of sand, of sand from his house. And as he opens the door to leave, he recites the verse and he takes a handful of the sand and he casts it towards the 15 men. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blows the sand, a wind comes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala orders the wind. The wind comes blowing, taking the sand into their faces. So now sand gets into their eyes, they're disconfigured, right? The Prophet takes, seizes this moment and he leaves. So they don't notice him. Now this was normal, they did not find this unusual because Mecca is a desert and it's very normal if you have some wind blowing, sand can get in your face. So they really didn't think anything of it. They didn't suspect that the Prophet now just left. They just thought, okay, yeah, the wind just blew on it and there's sand on our faces. But that's how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Prophet It was dark, remember it's at night so they can't really see that much anyway. And now there's the sand in their faces. They lost their orientation. So the Prophet sees that moment and he safely left the house. Then the Prophet when he left the house, he headed towards the cave of Thawr. This is something we'll examine later. You know, what happened to the Prophet as he was going there? Who accompanied him? Did Abu, did Abu Bakr accompany him? In what condition did he accompany him? And some details later.